Hi, my name's Mary Ann, and I'm a and I'm a recovering martyr. <laughs> Last night, when Pauline stood up here during her talk and did this kind of expression, it was on the crucifix. <laughs> I lived on the crucifix and I loved it. <laughs> I purposely went around without makeup on <laughs> so I would look worse. <laughs> I knew everyone was going, poor dear. She's married to an alcoholic. And I wanted people to feel sorry for me. Oh, man, I love that kind of crap. <laughs> I am here today because I want to tell you what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today. I ended up in Elanon because I threatened God. I don't know too many people that have had this experience. I went to Mass one Sunday after a particularly horrible Saturday night. And I said to God, that's it, sucker, I ain't coming back unless you get him to quit drinking. I went home, <coughs> sat down in the chair and waited, and he didn't stop drinking. <laughs> but I kid you not, during that week, do you know what happened to me? I got a call from a woman I went to high school with who had moved back to St. Louis. And she asked if we could get together and rekindle our friendship. <clears throat> and in the course of this conversation, she started telling me she belonged to this program called Eleanor. I was like, what? I honestly can tell you that back then, I thought an alcoholic was a skid row bum. My husband had a job, and he only drank beer. Couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. But this woman called several different times, always talking about this program called Elanon. And of course, I, in my self-righteous attitude, thought, poor dear, married an alcoholic. <laughs> <sighs> well, you know what? She called one day and caught me sobbing. It had been a particularly horrible event the night before. And we got to talking, for real talking. <clears throat> and she asked me to go to an Al-Anon meeting with her. I thought, I don't think he's an alcoholic. She says, you know what? It isn't even up to you to decide if he's an alcoholic or not. If his drinking bothers you, you belong in Al-Anon. Everything that man did bothered me. <laughs> He didn't even breathe right. I laid out his clothes and told him how to dress, and then I said, act like a man. For a living, he drives one of them 18-wheelers all over the place. And I didn't have a driver's license when I first met him, and I told him how to drive. 
Is that the epitome of control? <laughs> I'll tell you something. I grew up in a family of nine children in an Irish Catholic home, and I was bored out of my gourd from that house. I met this man. He was so exciting. I didn't realize it was crazy. <laughs> I thought it was exciting. And while I was dating him, that was okay. It was cute, you know, fun. Compulsive behavior on both of our parts, let me ask you. Met him in July, was engaged in September, was married the following March, and had twins nine months later. <laughs> Compulsive behavior? I don't think so, no. <laughs> and of course, the minute I married him, that stuff wasn't funny anymore. It was like, grow up. And I couldn't get him to quit. That stupid, ridiculous behavior. No matter how much I nagged, put him down, crabbed, screamed, yelled, he wouldn't quit it. He was a mess, and my job was to straighten him out. After all, I was one of the most religious people I knew. <laughs> I acted holy. If you said a cuss word in my presence, I snit at you. You know what a snit is? My mother was the ace of snitters. <laughs> She could snit so loud they would hear it in another county. <laughs> I grew up believing I was better than most people in the world because that's what I was told. I was told the people of my religion were the only ones that even went to heaven. So I was holy. <laughs> well, this woman takes me to my very first Elanon meeting, and my God, woohoo! we're talking some really weird people here. <laughs> the speaker was a woman who had nine kids, married to an alcoholic, and she was talking about how grateful she was. <laughs> I thought barfing in her shoes might be appropriate. <laughs> Is that disgusting or what? She was grateful. That's what her talk was. I thought, holy mackerel. But I did walk out of that room that night with something I didn't expect. I told me, hey me, if she can stand up there and be grateful because she has nine kids and she's married to an alcoholic, you only have five kids, you got it half made. <laughs> I took with me that night a piece of literature that says, just for today. On that just for today pamphlet, you know what, that little sucker costs a nickel, 20, this fall I'll be in Ellen on 28 years, best thing I ever did for me, I stayed. Thank you. Thank you. I took home that little nickel's worth of pamphlet and I challenged me that next day where it said, just for today I will find the beauty in my world. It was October when I came into Elanon, October of 72. And 
I looked out my back window and saw a rose still in bloom in October. And I went out and got it and cut it and put it on the counter. And I said, okay, me, you're going to look at that. And just for today, you're going to say there is something beautiful in your world. Because I was so full of self-pity, anger, rage, hatred, that this was like the very beginning of some kind of rebirth for me. I proceeded to go to these stupid Elanon meetings because my first night there, I said, okay, now how do I get him to quit drinking? And they said, honey, you're not here to get him to quit drinking. You're here to change yourself. Oh. <laughs> what was wrong with me? Ah, He was the one who screwed up. What is this? I thought, I know. I know what they're doing. I have this figured out. They want you to keep coming and get addicted to coming. <laughs> then they'll tell you how to get him to quit drinking. Honest to God, I came to Elanon almost 28 years ago for that one reason. I wanted to find out how I got that son of a bitch to quit drinking. <laughs> I see now in hindsight I stayed for a thousand reasons. They kept saying, Marianne, you can't get him to stop drinking. I kept disrupting their meetings <laughs> by saying, tell me. I was so messed up that I disrupted almost every night one of the Al-Anon meetings there because I just could not accept this, that it was about me changing me. My very first Elanon sponsor did to me, and by the way, my very first and still in my life, constantly. Every Monday morning at 5.15 a.m., we get together over coffee. We Thank you. I can't believe that anyone would stand up here at a conference and not have a home group not have a sponsor, and not use this program to the absolute best of their ability. But this woman, 27-something years ago, said to me, I will not sponsor you if you don't quit talking about him and start talking about you. I got off that phone, and I was furious with her. Man, who does she think she is? What do you mean, look at me? And I sat down one night and had one of the first spiritual awakenings of my life. And this is how it happened to me. I realized after I was in Elanon, I think probably seven months, that I had a compulsion very similar to my husband's. I had an addiction. Only mine was with food and his was with alcohol. This woman, my first sponsor, said to me, you go to the Council on Alcoholism, you get every piece of literature they have on the disease of alcoholism, and you sit down and you read it. I sat down armed with all this stuff, 
to figure out how I could figure out him and fix him. One of my plans after I got Nellen and I figured, okay, yeah, right. I was so nasty and mean and rotten. I'll just try getting him to quit drinking in a nicer way. <laughs> one of my plans was, I will save all the beer cans for one week. When he sees all those beer cans, he's going to go, oh, my God, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> you know why the plan didn't work? I lost my temper in the middle of the week and threw all the damn beer cans at him. <laughs> Gee, was my life unmanageable or what? And this woman got me to sit down armed with this literature to begin to understand and accept that it was a disease, not a moral concept. Therefore, she suggested very strongly that I quit calling him a son of a bitch. It's not a moral issue. And that night, honest to God, I was like zapped with this knowledge. Oh my God, this is me, only I do it with food. I have the same kind of behavior traits that he has because I'm addicted to something. And something has power over me instead of me having power over it. Bill, no more set out to ruin my life than the man in the moon. I no more set out to ruin my body with that food than anything. I, too, had an addiction. I got so busy, I helped start a program in St. Louis for a 12-step program for people that have an eating disorder. I can't believe how busy and how much I began to look at me instead of him. This man was so relieved. <laughs> He's the only active alcoholic I think I've ever met who said, honey, can I drive you to an Al-Anon meeting? Don't you need another one of those? I, I could have joined an organization for blue mooses. <laughs> and he would have been so happy if it would have got my mouth to shut up. I was so angry at him all the time. Well, you know, when I discovered this, when I had this revelation that I had an addiction, I checked into different places in St. Louis, and there was no 12-step program for that. So I went back to my Al-Anon friends and I whined. <laughs> I said, well, I can't recover. I can't change that because there's no program. And you know what they said to me? So start one. They don't let you whine in Al-Anon. Although I don't know if any of you know it, there is an Al-Anon salute. Has anyone ever seen that? Oh. <laughs> That's the Elanon salute. And I got so incredibly busy changing me on both sides of the fence, both programs. I knew, if I knew nothing else, that in the 12 steps was going to be my recovery. Admitting powerlessness over alcoholism. You know what? The first word of all 12 steps says we. It isn't my or me or I. 
It is we. And if you don't have a sponsor that you're talking to on an ongoing basis, you're not saying we admit we're powerless over alcoholism. Those people taught me to quit going to my relatives and telling them each and every disaster that that person did for me, because I had to quit calling him the other name. <laughs> he became the person. <laughs> they talked about detaching with love, but I want to tell you the honest-to-God truth. I learned detachment. I, in no way, shape, or form, in the beginning years, knew detachment with love. It was almost detachment with grr. All right, sucker, I'm detaching. Can you tell I'm detaching from you? <laughs> Somehow it didn't enchant our relationship. And I truly knew from those attempts to try to get him to change his behavior was an absolute waste of time. After about that first year and a half, two years, I began to see something, and I began to talk about it, and I began to see that people weren't really thrilled with me. Because I heard so many people in Al-Anon saying they were a mess because they married an alcoholic. And you know what? I figured out something. I brought as much crap and junk and distortion of my beliefs into that marriage and into that parenting that he did. That came from the home I grew up in. I wasn't this all-healthy person. I was pretty demented. And so I began to understand that I didn't cause his disease. And I could not cure it. Although that poor man, oh, those first few years before I got busy working on me, I made him go to AA meetings. And if you think someone can't make someone do something, <laughs> think he was a happy camper? Do you think that he went, oh, my darling, Eleanor, I mean, AA is wonderful. I just know I'm going to recover. I don't think he ever, ever talked to anyone. I think he snuck in after the meeting started, snuck out before it was over. And, of course, I caught him and told him, that's not how you do it. What a mess I was those first two years. But I know something today. It is a process. Please don't ever tell newcomers that they're going to learn this stuff overnight. It is a process. I have on my Dolores earrings. I call on my Dolores earrings because I met this woman, I would say, maybe eight years ago. And I was giving a talk at an Al-Anon meeting, and I was talking about how I knew that God didn't make bad things happen to punish anyone. And that after the meeting, she came up to me and she says, please help me learn to believe that because my daughter just died of cancer. And I'm so sure God did this to me to punish me. And we worked together for years, and she changed her belief. Then she got cancer herself, and then she died. And 
I guess about a week before she died, this is what she told me. Nothing is important in this life but love. Nothing. And she says, you better keep on keeping on telling people that it's a process. And everybody is capable of learning a new process. She would call and leave these mad, angry, crazy messages on my recorder, and then she would say, I know what you're going to tell me. You're going to tell me it's a process. She made the word so long. My birthday was in April before she died in August. And for that birthday, and I mean this woman was diagnosed, and it took her three years to die. And in those three years, she only had one week where she felt physically good. But she made me this wonderful birthday card on a computer. And the whole, it like started at the top and went all the way down saying, it's a process. She had it stretched out as far as she could. <laughs> the following April after her death, when I celebrated my next birthday, I felt kind of sad. I thought, ah, oh, you know, I'm not going to get a birthday card from Dolores this year. And at the funeral home, when Bill and I went, I said to her husband, you know, if you think of it, when you're sorting through her stuff, I would love to have one of her bookmarks out of one of her spiritual readings. Honest to God, on that next birthday, he did not, he couldn't possibly have known when my birthday was. I was close to Dolores, not close to her husband. That bookmark came in the mail to me, and he apologized for how long it took, but he didn't know it was the perfect day. And I wrote him and I told him that that card arrived on my birthday. And I know that sometimes we do get to connect with people who go and live somewhere else. She's only in another world or another form. And I don't want anyone to forget that it is a process. Keep coming back because it is a difficult process to learn. That second step came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. You know where I got that power? In these rooms. I saw something in these rooms, even when I was still being so crazy those first couple of years. I saw something. I saw this thing, and I didn't know exactly what it was. And they started telling me that, that it was serenity, that it was peace. And I told people, I said, I don't have time to sit down in prayer and meditate. What are you talking about? I have five little bitty kids. And this lady said to me, right, we know. You don't have time. You make time. So came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity was Picking up the phone, calling an Elanon member instead of a family member. Because <laughs> all that did was cause my family to be more frustrated for me, and it caused them to hate Bill. They didn't understand the disease. They thought he was the bad guy and I was the good guy, and there was a time in my life I wanted them to think I was the good guy. You know, no makeup, look like a martyr. <gasps> Oh, poor Mary Ann, she can't have anything because she's taking care of Bill. 
So I truly know that that second step began to restore me to sanity. And remember I told you I had a religion? But I didn't have a God of my understanding. I didn't have a spirituality. I didn't have that connection. So the people in those Al-Anon meetings were the power that was greater than me. That's what I connected to. As they continued to encourage me, to enlighten me, to love me, to assure me, I felt that power. And I remember one time, Bill and I got into this horrendous fight. I'd been in Al-Anon a couple of years, I don't know, two, three years. It was horrible. It was all the kids in the back. We are fighting over that damn steering wheel. He is drunk. He takes the keys, throws them out of the car. It was like insane. When I got home, I picked up the phone and somebody from my Al-Anon meeting restored me to sanity. Not about his behavior, but about my behavior in that fight. I was in Al-Anon three years before, before Bill hit a bottom and went into treatment. And do you know, when I walked in these doors, my youngest child was about nine months old or a year, something like that. And a couple years after I was in Al-Anon, she told me one time, she says, you know, Mommy, you look pretty now because your mouth smiles. How sick do we get? How much do we contribute to the behavior in that house? Well, I know mine was a hell of a lot. People in Al-Anon began to restore me to sanity. Made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood him. Had to do it the reverse way. I couldn't turn my life and will over because the God of my understanding then was a boogeyman. I don't know why, maybe I was the only one that heard it, but I heard, growing up in those Catholic schools and that Catholic church, I heard the boogeyman God. And it could very well have been because of the home I grew up in. I'm not saying they did a bad job, I'm saying that's what I heard. I heard a boogeyman. And you know what? You can't turn your life and will over to a boogeyman. No more than you could take your kids and turn them over to somebody who you knew was verbally, physically, or sexually abusive. You couldn't do that. That's how, that's how it would be. So I had to change my concept of God. And I did that by sitting around listening to people. I remember these people saying, you don't have to say those formal repetitious prayers if that bothers you. Just talk to God. And I went, oh, you're right. He's going to strike them with lightning. <laughs> and, you know, after two, three years when I saw they didn't get struck by lightning, <laughs> I tried it. Did I feel weird? You betcha. I did. I felt really weird sitting there in my kitchen in a rocking chair saying, okay, God. Here I am. And I really thought that's kind of what I did. I turned it over. I waited for him to take care of it. And I kept saying, uh, excuse me, I'm waiting for you to take care of it. And so often I couldn't see that anything happened. But after a while, I began to not see but to know something was happening. 
every once in a while, I would have this feeling of peace. Didn't last long, but I had it. And once you have it, you know you want it. And you become more willing to work and change yourself. And as I moved on to that fourth step, you remember I thought he was the one with the problem? I'm starting to do a fourth step, and actually that first fourth step I did, he could have put his name on the top, and turned it in when he went into treatment. <laughs> it was about him. But I'll tell you something that I know today. That was the only place that I could start. Bad inventory? Probably. But I don't know if there is such a thing as a bad or a good inventory. I have done many, 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 many inventories. You know what? They get better because I get more truthful. I, they get better because I'm, I get more willing to look at every vestige of crap in here. Because now I know that every vestige of crap that you pull out, in comes this incredible sense of freedom in another area of you. It is awesome. You know, in the beginning I saw that it was like if you had a wound on your finger and you decided not to take the thorn out, you just like put a band-aid on it, it would not heal, it would fester. And so if you don't get in here and you don't pull the crap out and you don't look at, you don't get free. I think inventory is sort of like going through a ringer. But when you come out, you begin to say, you know what, I am not so bad because this dude that wrote these steps knew what he was doing. The fifth step that says admit to another person, to God and yourself, the exact nature of your wrong. And you actually finally get the courage to go to a sponsor and you read an inventory. And like my first inventory, which was all about him, she listened to it and then she says, you know, Marianne, I would really like to see you do an inventory about yourself next. <laughs> and she said it with love. And I took it with love. That's where I was at in that first inventory. I did an inventory one time that was on the seven deadly sins, you know, pride, lust, anger, resentments, and hola mola. <laughs> resentments from kindergarten I had. I once was in church and this nun said, you are going to get it for peeing your pants in church. I didn't pee my pants in church but it had rolled down under my seat. <laughs> Do you know when I was a kid it would have never occurred to me to say, Sister, feel my pants. I didn't wear my pants. But I went around for mega years mad at the church because of what a one person said to me or accused me of. Resentments from kindergarten. You know something I learned about resentments? They're like acid. They eat the container they set in. And don't hurt the other person. They eat away at you. Once I did that first experiences of giving away a fifth step and somebody still loved me after I did it, what a powerful, 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 powerful experience that was.
to me, that's unconditional love. When they don't say, oh, geez, you are a piece of doo-doo, and I hope I never run into you again. <laughs> in all my years of being on the other side and taking inventories, I've only heard one thing that has shocked me. And I mean, we are probably talking over 100 people, maybe 200 people I've heard inventories from. One thing. We are so much alike, most of us, that it's just unbelievable. And then I found that after the fifth step, they needed me to look at the sixth step. Character defects. Oh, let me tell you something. I knew I was a character, but I didn't think I had any defects. <laughs> and yet, I am the only person that I have met so far in the country of traveling around and talking that had to make an amends to a whole group. I was invited to talk on the sixth step. You're just going to love this story. And I went there, and you know what? They weren't running their meeting right. <laughs> I had to tell them that they weren't running their meeting right. And yet I'm there to talk on the sixth step, hmm, entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. I went home and read the step. I sat down and I wrote an amends to a whole group. God, that was like eating gall. But you know what? Every mistake I make, I learn a lesson. Mistakes are for learning from, not for beating ourselves up. They are for learning from. And so I did start to work on these character defects, and something weird happened to me. As I started working on them, I felt like there was like, you open this can and all these snakes try to fly out. There's just like, there's too many. And I hated it, and the more I worked on them, the more they popped up. And the more I saw them, and it was very, very frightening. And then I began to understand something about this step. For me, this is how I see the sixth step. It is giving God permission. This, to me, is one step we absolutely cannot do ourselves. I can't change, I couldn't change, some of those character defects, like self-righteousness, like smart mouth, having to have the last word, is what I call it. And always being right. Those were like three of my strongest, rottenest character defects. And I just kept screwing up. I made amends for current events all the time. Not for things that happened in the past. It was always current events. And so one day I realized that's what I had to do. I had to give God permission. And the first thing I gave God permission to do with character defects was to stand on my tongue. <laughs> and you know, almost always I see prayers answered in hindsight. I would be in a particular situation and someone would say something smart to me and I would walk away and think, what the hell was wrong with me? I should have said this, this, and this. They got the best of me. And I began to realize, ooh, I think this is how God's answering that prayer. Your mind gets jumbled up, 
long enough for you to get away before your tongue gets in gear. <laughs> I gave God permission to stand on my tongue. When those um, call waiting buttons first came in St. Louis, my kids were still pretty young yet, and a neighbor was on the phone complaining to me about something my daughter did, and I was ready to tell her off. Ooh, you should have heard the volume of crap that was ready to come out of my mouth. And this thing bleeped. <laughs> and it was like God saying, honey, do you really want to say that to her? And I got off the phone. That was the God of my understanding giving me the opportunity to not do it, to not smart off to someone. These things sometimes are really, really funny, except when I stand up here and tell you I did them to my children. I did them to my husband. I did them to my siblings, to my parents. Because you know what? I grew up in a home, and the game was... You're the winner if you get the last smart-ass remark in. You're the winner. I don't know what the heck we thought we were winning. Well, when I moved on to the step seven, humbly asked God to remove our shortcomings, I knew when I first came in that Bill W. made a mistake when he wrote that step. <laughs> what a word. What a concept in our world, humility. Oh, yeah, right. I thought humility was allowing someone to humiliate you. And if you grow up weighing like 200 pounds in grade school, you know humiliation. So I thought, if I did this, somebody was going to humiliate me. And people began in Elanon to try to teach me that humility was not a bad thing. Humility was accepting your good qualities and at the same time accepting your limitations. Humility meant you weren't any better or any worse than any other human being. And yet, putting that to practice in my life was difficult. But if I know anything about God that I can tell you is a total proven fact in my life, is that if you need a lesson, he will, like, plunk someone right in your life to teach you a lesson. At that time in our life, we had gotten a new priest in our parish, and man was that young man a know-it-all. And I think that he thought he was assigned to me <laughs> to straighten me out. Well, man, did I have news for him. I thought I was assigned to his life to teach him these 12 steps. And you know what we did? We started to spar. We sparred just about every Sunday after Mass. I mean, isn't that the place you spar? Back and forth, smart remarks, put-downs. I wanted to convince him that the way of life was these 12 steps. And he wanted to convince me that I should be a charismatic Catholic. Well, one Sunday I left church. I'm walking home. 
And you know what I felt like? Total yuck. Because it just occurred to me that I had done it again. That smart mouth had gotten in there and said some big fat put down. And I said one of the weirdest heart prayers of my life. There are heart prayers and there are head prayers. Head prayers are those ones I used to do. Okay, let's see now. If I say just the right formula here, just the right words, and it sounds so awesome, God's going to do it. Those are head prayers. Heart prayers come from the heart. Heart prayers are the ones like this prayer. This is the prayer I said that Sunday. God, do whatever you have to to make me a humble woman. <laughs> and I'm not kidding you. As soon as those words were out of my mouth, I felt this, oh my God. <laughs> and by the following Saturday, I had an experience that taught me more humility than I ever cared to learn in my life. On a Saturday afternoon, I was taking two of my children. I, I had this little Nash Rambler, little tank, Sherman tank of a car. And we were riding down like just two blocks from our home, and I collided with that little Sherman tank with a fire engine. Do you have any idea how big a hook and ladder fire engine is? Close up, get close up and one. Whoo, are they big? Oh my God, what an experience that was. Bill was newly sobered. You know, I heard a, a Ellen on speaker say that the nicest thing about the first year of sobriety is that it only lasts for 365 days. <laughs> newly sobered, and my son Mark says, Mom, I'll run home and get Dad. I said, oh, thank you. God, I can't wait till he gets here to comfort me. <laughs> you know, that's what they do in the movies. <laughs> Seriously, the husband arrives in the movie and he goes, Oh, my darling, are you okay? <laughs> Not in real life. <laughs> he gets there. You know what he says to me? What the hell did you do, Mary Oh, my God, are you going to get arrested? You are going to be in so much trouble. You hit an emergency vehicle. You think I didn't know I hit an emergency vehicle? How do you not know you hit a fire engine? But here it was. It seemed like it was everyone's job to tell me. They put this on the six o'clock news. <laughs> we are standing in the emergency room waiting to be treated. It is on television. Big deal. Me hitting a fire engine? I didn't think it was. Should have been in the paper. They even printed my age, so I stayed 38. That's my age. <laughs> You can do that if they print your age in the paper. <laughs> well, we're sitting there waiting, and in comes this priest, 
from the church. You know, the neighborhood's all messed up because there's all these emergency vehicles trying to clean up this mess. Even before we left the scene of the accident, some young boy there came up and said, Mrs. Scheipeter, you had a fire on John. <laughs> what is wrong with you people? I know I had a But nothing came out of my mouth. So we're at the hospital. Here comes this priest. He says, is everybody okay? Is everybody okay? He's checking everybody out. And he sits down, and he busts out laughing. <laughs> he said, you hit a fire engine! <laughs> Even some of the doctors, like, did a snicker. I did a snit right back at him. <laughs> now, the one place I didn't expect any humor was with the insurance company. But they, too, thought it was funny. <laughs> Obviously, they haven't had many claims where people hit fire engines and walk away. Well, you know, that's what happened to me several days after the fire engine incident, I was standing in my kitchen and I was absolutely awed by two things. Number one, that I didn't have to see one of my kids killed or maybe injured, maimed for life. Didn't have to do that. I also was so awed because for some reason my mouth didn't get into an argument with anybody who said, Yeah, I had a fire engine! Some of our friends thought they were so hilarious. This was close to Halloween, and they showed up about a week later dressed up as firemen. <laughs> Cute, huh? But that was my experience. I was awed. Oh, Absolutely awed by those two things. My kids weren't killed or maimed. I was, my mouth was like struck dumb over it. And I never had to mouth off or smart back or say one fussy, ugly thing with anybody because I knew it wasn't about that. I knew it was God saying, Honey, please learn from this. I don't want to have to give you another lesson. <laughs> And I want to tell you that seconds before the accident happened, and I do mean seconds, my son, who was probably a, at that time about 11 years old, was sitting in the front seat with me. This was before seatbelts. And our daughter, who was about four, five, five years old, was standing in the back, standing. You know, when they had the humps back there and she was standing, leaning over. And for some reason, Mark said to her, Janie, come and sit in the middle instead of standing and leaning over. Now, if she had been leaning, standing, leaning over, she would have went right out that windshield. Instead, she was sitting in the front. She went down and under the dash. She had a minor eye injury, minor eye injury. I was awed. It was like, I can't even begin to tell you how odd I was that my kids were not maimed or killed. 
that no matter what people said or how much I laughed over this incident, I was okay with me. I knew that life was teaching me some lessons. And I damn well knew they were lessons. I don't want to learn again. I'm learning this one. I'm suiting up here. And when I began the process of the amends, I do want to back up and tell you that I was not a very wise person when I first came into Elanon. I heard this amends step. I probably was in Elanon all of a month. I didn't confer with anybody. I didn't ask a sponsor. I don't even think I had a sponsor right away. And I decided, my brother-in-law, I'm going to go make an amends to that asshole. <laughs> you know, because I thought that if I made this amends in the guise of an amend, he would say, oh, I am so sorry, I've been so rude to you. <laughs> what I did was just alienate him about a hundred times worse than he was already alienated at me because I was so self-righteous all the time. And he wouldn't speak to me for a long time. And there was a life lesson to learn in there. First of all, the eighth step is not about going and making an amends. That eighth step is a list of the people that I have harmed and become willing to make amends to them. That ninth step tells us just as absolutely clear as it can that we make direct amends whenever possible, except when to do so would injure ourselves or others. Well, motive for me, I always have to look at, what is your motive here? I talk it out with a sponsor when I have to make an amend. And then, because I'm a recovering smart mouth, <laughs> I have to pray for three days about what is going to get said from my mouth. And it has to be said with I statements, not you. I statements. And so I've learned how to properly use the eighth and ninth step. I was absolutely amazed when I got to the point where I could make amends to myself. I didn't even know I was supposed to be on that list. And I learned how to start making amends to myself. If you're a martyr, martyrs do not buy clothes for themselves. I wore a coat that was probably handed down from my ancestors about a hundred generations ago because <laughs> isn't that what martyrs are supposed to do? They're not supposed to have anything for themselves. Oh, sure, honey, you can go ahead and have that. And then, you know what I would do? I would find ways to beat him up with my mouth. Tear him down, put him down. And I can't even begin to tell you how many years I was in Elanon before I even began to think and believe I had to make an amends to him. And there were many, many amends I had to make to him. Many degrees of amends I had to make to him. First of all, just thinking you are better than another human being is a terrible, terrible wrong to do to another human being. I didn't think it. I knew it. I was better than him. 
and I was from a better family, and I was to teach him all kinds of lessons. Well, you can't believe how delighted this man was to hear something one day. I, have a, I had a brother who, when he was 21 years old, fell from a construction job. He was an iron worker. He was going to college, and he did this iron worker during the summer. The last day on the job, he had been married three weeks, and he was going back to college that Monday. It happened on a Friday. And he fell through an elevator shaft. And on the way down, he severed his spinal cord on a two-by-four. It was one of the worst injuries I've ever seen in my life. And number two, it was the first time in my life I ever saw someone's life changed in an instant. In an instant. I thought I was pretty darn smart when I came into Elanon and latched on to the one day at a time, to the live in the moment concept so quickly. And in hindsight, I realized that came to me because of my brother's horrible incident, horrible tragedy. I had this living example in front of me. He lived for 30 years in that condition. And let me tell you folks, being paralyzed from the neck down, you can't do anything for yourself. He couldn't even start his day if someone didn't come in to take care of him. And it happened all the time because in the healthcare field, there are a lot of people who work there who aren't really dedicated. You, oh, what a dedication those people have to. And yet, I thought it was my job when I got in these 12-step programs, when I was in the evangelizing stage of the programs. <laughs> Who better than my brother needed the message of the 12 steps? Who better than his big sister to take this message to him? I think in the Bible somewhere it says, no man is a prophet in his own homeland. I know what that means. I think he's telling us to shut up. Don't try to convince your siblings that this is the way to live. Man, I took off. Many of us, um, at one time or another, actually worked for my brother. We got paid by the insurance company to take care of him because it was very, very difficult to get and keep help. And we all quite often suited up and took that part. And some of that, I think, was good of me, and other parts was just wicked. Nothing but wicked. Because I was going to convince him, I was there to preach to him, and I was going to get him saved. And you know what? He told me where I could cram this information. <laughs> he also said to me one day, could you possibly be, since you're off Bill's case, controlling him, could you possibly be addicted to controlling me now? Ah, uh, I had to look at that. You know what? Yeah, he was right. And you know what else I learned? This program can't be given to another person. It's a program of attraction, not promotion. Do you know when my brother became a believer in our 12-step way of life? 
He became a believer in it when he saw Bill and I walk through one of the toughest parts of our life. You know, I remember thinking at one point, ah, oh, man, I've lived through alcoholism. Whew. He's sober now. I'm done with this stuff. Life has to get easier now. Just about the time I thought that, our youngest daughter, who was born with two horrendous birth defects, had to have this horrible surgery. She was born with an introverted chest plate, and so they had to uh, break that, put it back in place, and, oh, man, it was a nasty thing. So we get through that one day at a time with the support of all my l and friends, and we are beginning to chug along again. And I have this dream one night. I dream that my oldest daughter, who is 16 years old, is going to have a baby. And it's like, holy shit, what a goofy dream. And a few days later, I knew that that was God preparing me for a horrendously painful event. And somehow when she came to tell me, but I had really picked up all the information before that, all the signs after this dream, and I went and told my second sponsor, who had lived with us for a year and a half when she left a very violent situation, and she had totally fallen in love with our Cindy and our youngest son, Stephen. And she says to me, oh, for God's sake, you are over the wall, just like your kids said you are. You know what? She had gotten too close to my family to be my sponsor at that point, and so I had to go to another sponsor and say, you know what? I know my daughter's pregnant. And she says, you have to wait till she tells you. And yet, God did prepare me because I thank God to this day that I didn't castrate her. That that mouth wasn't raging and ugly and nasty and putting down. This girl had a really tough road to hoe, and she didn't need her mother. I wanted, as this program taught me, to be part of the solution not part of the problem. And of course, I was still doing some of that mother-knows-best shit. Oh, honey, you have to give this child up for adoption. I just knew that her life would be totally ended. And someone in Elena got my attention and said, Oh, no, 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 Mary Ann. You don't get to make the decision for her body are her child. You only make decisions for the part you guys are going to be a part of. Like if she lives in your home, you set the boundaries. If she lives in your home, you have to take a backseat to that baby because he will bond with you and not with her. You're the mother in that home. And so, I can't tell you today how grateful I am that I didn't try to convince my daughter to give that boy up for adoption. 
In March, he was 18 years old, and he graduated from high school a few weeks ago, and he is absolutely the love of our life. He knows I'm Grandma, and grandmas are people you go and talk to that you can't talk to your parents. Most teenagers don't talk to their parents. <laughs> he used to even hang around with Grandpa and Grandma, because it wasn't embarrassing for him, obviously, to be with his Grandma and Grandpa, but it was to be with his parents. And I had seen a plaque one time in a religious store about tolerance, and I wanted it. But you know what? You don't learn tolerance from reading the play. Plaque. You learn tolerance from walking through something like that. My brother told us that because he seen us walk with her with our heads up, not put her down, not be yeah, maybe we were disappointed because that was not the summer camp I wanted to sign her up for. Her childhood was over. She did go back to high school and finish up because we did nothing but tough love down the road. If you live in our home, you will get in counseling. If you live in our home, you will finish school. If you live in, you will take care of this child yourself. I couldn't even be the babysitter for that first nine months because I did not want that child to adhere to me. And my brother told us, man, when I saw you guys live that way with Cindy, that's when I believed in your 12-step program. It's a program of attraction. You can't evangelize it to anybody. And I really and truly believe that the greatest amend I made to my children, to my husband, to everybody that I come near is changing myself, becoming the best person I can be. Not better or worse than anybody else, but the best person I can be. That's the greatest amend I made to my children. I think also because I would go back and tell them when I made mistakes, you know, like sometimes you get wound up and aggravated and you say, you're grounded for life. <laughs> and you have to go back and say, you know, I owe you an amend. I can't ground you for life. They, they were encouraged, I believe, through that to make amends for me when they lost their cool, which they quite frequently did too. It was very difficult for our children having a sister live there with a child. It's very difficult watching a child raise a child. But not impossible if you have the love and support of this fellowship, which I have been privileged to have to walk through every vestige of my life, every problem, every pain. The 10th step, I realize this for me about the 10th step. When I first came into these programs, I had no conscience. I could smart mouth, I could put down, I could do all those nasty things without feeling anything afterwards because I didn't have a conscience. I developed a conscience from being in this program. And I figured out something. It's right here. That's where your conscience is. It must be because that's where I feel yucky when I've just come away from saying or doing something that I don't feel 
good about. I don't even stop at the end of my day and take a daily inventory. I don't have to because I've developed a conscience. I know. It's right there. I feel it. And then I have to talk to somebody about what I need to do to change it or to apologize or whatever it is. Now this 11th step. My lordy, this is my favorite step. And I'll tell you something. I've told you what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. As a result of coming into Al-Anon, as a result of practicing this 11th step every day, I have something today that didn't come from my religion. It came to me through the spirituality of the 12 steps. And if you work them, Everybody in their life will have their own individual spirituality. doesn't have to be like anybody else's in the world. And doesn't have to be perfect. It can be what I have, what I call imperfect spirituality. That's what I have and I love it. I love being a human being now. You know why? I don't have to be perfect. Human beings could never be perfect. I don't know why people told us to be more instead of you don't have to be more. Human beings are always capable of mistakes. I still to this day am capable of getting into a foul mood. I couldn't tell you otherwise because Bill's here and he'd tell you the truth. <laughs> but I am growing. I am growing because I used to be what I called a rage-aholic. Most Elanons get to get up here and tell about how he was the violent one in their home. I'm one of the other ones who gets to get up here and say, he was not the violent one, I was. One time this man came home drunk on St. Patrick's Day. I'd been home with the five kids all day and man was oh, laying for a fight. He got so fed up with me that he, he was screaming, I was screaming, he went in the bathroom and I locked him in. <laughs> he climbed out the window. I went out in the front yard and tackled him to the ground. I was the violent one in our home. You know, when you come to your senses and you realize you're in the front yard and you're trying to beat up your husband <laughs> and the neighbor kids are watching <laughs> some people wouldn't call that a spiritual awakening but honey it is a spiritual awakening and the program was so strong that it taught me to quit physically hurting him the first time I was ever asked to speak at what I thought was an impressive gathering of Elanon people was at a treatment center in our area, a brand new treatment center called Highland Center, and I'm tooling out there, and I think I'm so cute. And man, I'm praying, Lord, let me say just the most awesome things possible. And I heard this little still voice say, oh, no, you're not, honey. You're going to tell them what you were like. 
And honest to God, I knew walking across the parking lot, I said another one of those heart prayers. God, help me tell it like it was and like I was. Open my mouth, start talking, and my mouth is saying how I beat up my husband when he was in a cast. I hit him over the head with a rocking chair. <laughs> Wasn't I sick? Well, you know, you're talking, well, your mouth's talking, and you go, oh my God, what are you singing this for? <laughs> If there's a psych ward here, they're going to put you in it, girl. <laughs> the second person to share that night was a man. And he said to me, Honey, if you never do anything else right in this program, I am thanking you tonight for telling me that you were the violent one and that you have been able to forgive yourself and move on because I did that to someone in my family and I will walk out of here and try to learn to forgive myself because you did. And you know what? That's what it's all about. I don't know who is where and who needs to hear what, but the God of my understanding does, and I have to turn every talk over to Him. As I've learned to turn my life and my will over every day. This 11th step taught me something. I used to obsess like some kind of nut. What if I'm not doing God's will? Oh my God, am I going to get in trouble? What, this could not be, maybe this is another. I think God said to me one day, for God's sake, lighten up. You don't have to know everything at every moment. This 11th step, the power of doing it over and over and over, taught me something that's so clear to me today, I would bet the farm on it. I know God's will. I know God's will for me in every vestige of my life, and that is to be loving. Yeah, maybe I don't know the right house to buy or the right car or the right job. No one can know these things all the time perfectly because we're human beings. God is good, orderly direction. If you're going in the wrong direction, believe me, you will find more blocks it won't happen. But, without a doubt, I know that God's will for me is to be loving to everybody and every vestige. And you know what else I know? And I'm thrilled to death I know this. I don't have the power. I can't do it on my own. Totally cannot do it on my own. You think about some of the relationships in your life. Still to this day, even though I've changed 100 degrees, People get on my damn nerves. <laughs> There's still today people in my life I'd rather choke their necks. <laughs> I thought, you know, I used to hear people joke about the 13th step. Well, I don't care what their concept of the 13th step is. I thought if all 12 fail, you get to choke their neck till their eyes pop out. <laughs> Somehow, when I wrote to the headquarters, they wouldn't let me put that 13th step in there. But this step, when I turn my life and will over every day, 
I know where the power comes from. The power comes from the God of my understanding to be loving in every area of my life. No one wants to walk through a pregnancy with a 16-year-old daughter. God gave me the power to love her. God has given me the power to be able to be a part of restoring my marriage to sanity. I had a horrible, and it continued to be horrible, attitude about Bill. Wasn't going to really love him until he was a really what I wanted him to be. Not an option. Not an option. I also learned that there are people in my family who are toxic to me. I don't have to spend more than five minutes a year with those people. But I can't talk about them behind their back, act like I'm better, or put them down. That is not what the God of my understanding calls love. I started to tell you a story and didn't finish it about my brother. He was, um, he lived 30 years that way, and about four and a half years ago, he died. His um, kidneys started shutting down, which is what happens. And if you've ever seen someone die of AIDS, this was pretty similar. He, um, it was horrible. In those novels, they write about how pretty someone's death was, and I go, what a bunch of sh junk. <laughs> junk doesn't have an S in it, does it? <laughs> I've really behaved myself with cuss words today. But at my brother's funeral, Actually, I should say the day he died, when we were all gathered at my mother's house, you know, the rest of these eight siblings, my mother, my father was in a nursing home, so he wasn't there. My brother had a, a young woman who came to work for him when he was, she was 17 years old and stayed with him until he died. He decided to leave all of his money to her and to my family was not happy campers. He decided to write out his whole funeral arrangements. She gave this to my mother, and my mother was livid. Somehow my program kicked in, because I said to my husband, Honey, we are out of here. <laughs> uh, you may think I'm smart, but I don't think it takes much smarts to know my family and say, Ooh, a fight's about ready to start. We are talking the most hellacious behavior in the whole wide world. People say that if you want to see the crazies in a family, it's usually at a wedding or a funeral. I said to my husband a few days later when I got dressed and walked into the kitchen, we were getting ready to leave for the funeral, I said to Bill, you know what, Bill? I have to tell you, I think my family could even be crazier than yours. <laughs> now, Bill looked at the ceiling and said, Oh, God, there is a God. 
at the hospital the last day of his life, my sister from out of town and my brother from out of town were in charge. I don't know who died and put them in charge, but they were in charge. And my sister, the youngest one in the family, was telling me that I should be the one taking my mother home and taking care of my mother. Well, here I was, ready. The mouth opened up, and I was ready to tell her. And you know what went through my head? I've read the big book one time, and I've certainly heard people talk a lot about it. But you know what went through my head? Somebody else said it up here this weekend. It was like a marquee where those words are printed across. And what it said was, you have resigned from the debating society. <laughs> and my mouth said, excuse me, I'm out of here. I'm out of this conversation. And I left with my mom. And I felt some wonderful compassion for my mom. My mom's a difficult, difficult lady. I would have to be here like for the whole weekend to tell you all about that. <laughs> but I will tell you this. This program, that 11th step, has taught me that I can set boundaries with my mother in loving I statement ways. I can keep my dignity. I can also treat her with phenomenal dignity now. I can love her without putting up with or accepting the bad behavior. I have learned how to tell her in the most kindest, loving ways. And my mother will never say it. I do not think I will ever hear my mother say it. But I know she deeply respects me. She's always loved me, but she didn't know how to show love and why it had to be the other way around. I don't know. I'm not going to try to figure it out. I'm glad I know how to love her today. My boundary was with that funeral. Don't listen to anything anyone has to say about it for at least nine years. <laughs> And it's working. <laughs> I want to tell you too that I had I got on one of those self-righteous trips after it was over. Oh boy, didn't I do great? I was the only one that didn't show off and act like a stupid nut and be mad over the money and blah blah. Tooling down the highway one day and God says to me, It's simply because you were in these programs you chose these programs, you're walking the walk, you can be different. You would have been in there just like them. And I knew it. I knew it to be the truth. I feel so grateful that I have learned that the power to love comes from God. I don't have it. There are people, I've heard them, I do not believe them, who say, that every time they get around their family, they have fun. <laughs> Not my experience. I pretty much think the F word should be family and not fuck.
I'll tell you the goodness of God. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, I get to carry the message and practice these principles in all my affairs.